particularly for a lot of young budding science communicators coming straight out of university or even school, I hope they just spend most of their energy trying to make content and trying to actually hone their skill rather than worrying too much about all these meta things to begin with. I think the most important thing you can do is just practice and do as much as you can. Welcome to How to Make a Science Video. As a science communicator, how do you do your best to help, or at least do no harm? You're listening to Sophie Ward and Simon Clark, and together we have over a decade of YouTube experience and a Psycom Masters to boot. We both make science videos, and we're both curious about how to best share science with the world. To find out how he does it, this week we're talking to... Hi there, my name's Rohan Francis. I'm a cardiologist and sort of full-time in the NHS, but I have a YouTube channel called Medlife Crisis where I post occasionally, let's say, kind of uh, medically-themed videos, but more about how to think about science and, you know, maybe tackling a specific topic occasionally, but more about thought processes related to um, the kind of whole concept of how to critically appraise science. And, yeah, that's kind of my main outlet online. Presumably, when people ask you what you do for a living, you default to doctor. Do you ever lead with saying you're a YouTuber? Only in social... Because I generally, even before I started YouTube, I find saying I'm a doctor very boring. I think it's the, one of those boring jobs you can imagine. It's the most middle-class, cliché job, especially for an Indian guy. So <laughs> if I meet someone at a party or at a music festival, I've always had these kind of fake personas that I adopt kind of based on things that I know a bit about. So I'd say I'm a journalist. Occasionally, I just you know say I'm a racing driver or something. Because mm. uh, <laughs> anything is more interesting than doctor. And then more recently, yeah, I've tried out YouTuber, but I just feel like a fool. But I had this conversation with low spec gamer Alex and he was saying that YouTubers generally don't like saying YouTuber. But for me, it's the much more interesting part of what I do. So I'd much rather tell someone I'm a YouTuber than a doctor, particularly because then no one will show me their rash. Yeah, well, I was going to say that's the reaction, isn't it? When you're a doctor, it's like, great, fix me. Like, (laughs) can we go into a private area so I can show you my rash? Yeah. And do you ever think of yourself as a science communicator? Is that a term that you ever use? I think, yes, now, quite recently. It took me a few years to sort of feel at home with it. And I think that's more about my own misconceptions related to the term and perhaps my early experiences with science communication. And I think I've kind of come full circle because I came to the whole concept of science communication quite late in my career. You know, I'd already been going as a doctor for quite a few years. And then I came out of full-time medicine to do a PhD. And that's when I started having a bit more time and thinking about, you know, maybe putting some stuff online. And because I was new to this whole field, I kind of sought out other science communicators. And I think I was a little put off by my early experiences because I found that there were a lot of people who spent a lot of time talking about science communication, but not actually doing much science communication. Mm -hmm. And I got a bit frustrated and I'd kind of, you know, got to know a bit of this crowd and I just found it, you know, kind of just, it wasn't for me. And so I went off to do my own thing and, and then I've met you guys and lots of other people that I felt were much more 
the kinds of people that I was inspired by and I, I could get ideas from. And it's taken me a few years to come back round, and now I'm really interested in talking about science communication. Mm. But it's taken me quite a while to get there. Now I really appreciate having these conversations about how we do it, you know, ideas and actually putting some more thought into what I'm doing as well. So, yes, I would say I'm comfortable calling myself a science communicator, but it's taken me four years to get there. That's such an interesting approach. I feel like when you say, like, there's a lot of people talking about doing science communication without actually communicating it, do you mean, like, it's quite insular? Like, it's people patting each other on the back for not necessarily accessing new audiences? Is that what you mean? Exactly, yeah. It just felt like they were just talking to each other the whole time and doing little events which were fun and, you know, I did some of them. But I just felt like, you know, this isn't the objective I had here. Like, I want want to get the word out to other people. And exactly, it felt quite insular and also like a little bit of a clique. So I I didn't feel like I was accepted into that party and I I just felt like an outsider. So the thing I'd, I'd say there is particularly for a lot of young budding science communicators coming straight out of university or even school, I hope they just spend most of their energy trying to make content and trying to actually hone their skill rather than worrying too much about all these kinds of meta things to begin with. I think the most important thing you can do is just practice and do as much as you can and then start embracing some of these ideas and and thinking about about it a bit more. Because I I felt like there were a lot of senior people in this particular group that felt that science communication had to be done in a very specific way. Mm. And I just thought that wasn't giving people the options to just kind of explore what they wanted to do. I mean, you, you sort of alluded to there being people that you found that you, it's almost like you found your tribe. I mean, were there specific creators that you used as touchstones, as inspirations when you started making videos? For sure, yeah. It's going to be a total cliche, but in terms of YouTube personalities, Vsauce, you know, was, I'm sure loads of people will see Michael as an inspiration, but I really do think he is something special. And I don't know him. I've never interacted with him or, or met him since. And And I'm very lucky that I've met a lot of the other people that I used to enjoy watching. You know, I'd seen your channel, Simon, a long time before I spoke to you. Real Engineering was another who then I subsequently got to know quite well. But I think probably one of the reasons Michael I identified with is because he was about my age. I thought Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a senior citizen already. (laughs) So I thought, okay, this guy's, you know, kind of my age and he's doing fantastic. So yeah, I came to it all quite late. So I think my experience is possibly a little different to a lot of YouTube science communicators. And just for a little bit more on your experience, could you just like kind of summarise the journey of your channel? Well, I guess it's not your profession. Like you don't do it professionally, right? Because you're a doctor. But like... I know, for example, you did a guest video with Tom Scott. Did that kind of change how much you focused on your channel, like when it grew? Like, basically, tell me a bit about your channel growth. Yeah, I mean, the Tom Scott video was, you know, really instrumental to the channel kind of taking off. Rowan, over to you. How long can you hold your breath? One, two minutes? I'm sorry, Homo sapiens is just pretty pathetic next to the diving world champions who can stay underwater for one or two hours. So how do they do it? Well, there are a few different ways. Some you can actually take advantage of by channeling your inner dolphin. Others involve a little bit of gentle evolution, so maybe a bit of a tall order for most of us, unless you're a member of an Asian community who have evolved into real-life Aquaman. It was a mutual friend of 
Simon's and mine, a guy called Alex, who is, I guess you could also call him a science communicator, and does a lot of live kind of things, a bit of stand-up comedy and sort of funny talks and stuff. And I did an event with him, and I've always kind of given presentations through work and stuff, which are a bit funny. So, I, you know, I'd always lent on humor as my kind of USP for a lot of scientific talks to medics. And then... I did this kind of science stand-up gig with Alex and I thought, oh yeah, this is this is kind of fun. And he's like, you know, why don't you put this stuff online? And that's what gave me the idea. Was, oh yeah, why not? And made my first video during PhD time. And it was just a hobby. You know, it was just fun. You know what doing research is like. Anything to avoid doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I would pour a lot of energy into it early on and it was just a passion project. But then, yes, I got a, a guest appearance on a much larger channel, Tom Scott's channel, around January 2019. And I went from sort of 5,000 subscribers to 30,000 in a couple of days. And, you know, Tom's been very charitable since then, saying that a lot of channels who've guest appeared before haven't maintained the trajectory. So he was like, oh, you know, it's nothing to do with me and in typical Tom Scott way. But, you know, obviously it was very much to do with him. But yes, it, I had to run with the momentum. So I, I then really thought, OK, I've got to keep making videos. And in that year, the kind of year I was supposed to be writing up, and I just found out I loved it and really enjoyed it. But then went back into full-time medicine right around the time the pandemic hit. And that then brought a different attention to the channel. So yes, COVID pandemic killed a lot of people and it was bad for the world, but you know, it really boosted my YouTube channel. Mm, yeah. So pros and cons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I started seeing it as, oh shit, do I actually have a responsibility here? Do I actually have to make useful content rather than just kind of stuff that interests me but that lasted a few months and <laughs> I went back to just <laughs> making videos that I wanted to make and I left all the serious stuff to other people but yeah I think you know definitely it has slowed in recent years I've become more senior through work and had more responsibilities there I had children and everything so time is limited and now I'm lucky if I bring out a video every two three months but I feel like slow and steady progress is all I'm looking for. I, I just, I don't want it to stagnate and, and die off, but I'm never going to be able to keep up with friends who are, you know, doing this full time. And that can really get frustrating. And mm. I do feel that's the one thing that really, you know, I've got so many ideas. That's not a problem. It's just getting the time to do everything. So, you know, I do struggle with that occasionally that I'll feel frustrated that I can't allocate more time to it. I mean, you work entirely on your own, is that correct? You don't you, we'll use an editor? For the last few videos, I've got an editor. Ah. Yeah. I just thought that watching your placebo effect video, I was like, oh, the editing on this is so good. I don't think Rowan did that. <laughs> <laughs> Charming. <laughs> I do about half. I do about half. Oh, really? Yeah, no, no, wait, but you're right. On, let, me, let me rephrase that. I meant because you're like spending so much time doing doctoring, I was like, oh, wow, there's like a lot of new editing tricks in this that I feel like Rowan maybe hasn't learned in the time that he had to make this video. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah, phew. Rowan can take it, by the way. You can take the, the jibes. I know <laughs> that about you. But each one of these videos, they're infrequently released, but, you know, the, your views are really consistent between projects, like certainly compared to a lot of other channels which have really big peaks and troughs. Mm. Each one seems to be a banger. When you are coming up with a video, what's the first step? Like, how do you start the chain of events that results in a video being released? I mean, I've got... Google document with, I think it's almost 200 video ideas now. So anytime I have an idea, I'll just 
jot something down, put a few links, maybe a Twitter thread that I've seen or an article that I've read and I'll just, just stick it in there. I know, I know, I'm supposed to migrate to Notion. Um, yeah, I but, was going to uh, ask you, is it on, yeah, when you said Google Doc, I was no, like, No, no, oh, just, it's, still, it's still Google Documents, I'm afraid. I'm one of the relics. And this is maybe an interesting thing. I was actually going to ask some creator friends like you, sort of whether you struggle with this, is that I find a lot of my leisure time reading I now kind of end up reading stuff that could potentially be turned into a video. So I'll read a lot of nonfiction books. I'll read a lot of history of medicine books. Oh, yeah. 100%. And I've lost the kind of ability to just enjoy like a novel or something. And that's, you know, something I've noticed recently that I feel like I'm always kind of on. I'm always looking for ideas. But I don't need to because I've already got yeah. too many ideas. So I need to get out of that habit. But so say then they'll sit there for a while. And if one keeps coming back, I'll be like, I, I really want to kind of tackle that one. And then they kind of fall into a couple of categories. Like there's one where I really want to do a good job, but it feels like it's such a big topic that those are the ones I fail to get on top of. Because if your time is limited, the temptation is to try and turn around something that's going to be a bit easier, that's going to be a bit quicker. Yeah. So, you know, my next video that's coming out, I think probably falls into that category. It's a bit more of a simple topic. It's not one that really kind of was overly fascinating to me, but it was something I wanted to do. And I knew that I could do it fairly coherently and, and it wouldn't take too long to turn around. But then there are other ones like I want to do a wide ranging look at all the weird plastic surgery that's kind of commodified on social media and another one about medical podcasters and, and, you know, all the problems with medical podcasters. But they're so big. And I know I'll get mm. so much kind of pushback and fans of, of all the people I'd be talking about that I really want to do it properly. Mm. And those are the ones that just sit there and sit there and sit there. And I think I need to think of a way. Maybe I need to hire somebody to help me do some research for those ones. But the writing is the part of the process which I really enjoy. And I have no problems writing. And I can just do that around you know, whatever, I can take my iPad somewhere and just sit on a train or whatever. That bit is easy. And that's what I enjoy. And I'll do that for maybe like a month. I'll research something and write and, you know, just here and there. And I'll think about the topics in my head. And, and a lot of the time, it's all written in my head, and I'll just commit it down to a document. It's the shooting that I detest. I cannot tell you how much I hate filming. Really? <laughs> yeah, just such a chore. And every part of it is just awful. Are they really tightly scripted them? Because your videos are so joke dense and so like funny and it's like you're just having a chat. So I wouldn't have thought you hated filming that much because to me it seemed like you write this great script, you just present it, boom. And what I really like about you is if you have an occasional little stumble, like you keep it in because it makes it feel really naturalistic. It just intrigues me that you find it that, that hard because to me... I don't know, you've got this tight script and you just deliver it really well. They are really tightly scripted, right, your videos? They feel like they are. Yeah, I use an auto cue now. and But I guess, you know, some people, I think, say that makes them sound a bit robotic. But I think that I'm OK with that. Like, I think, I hope it still comes across fairly natural. The reason I leave in stumbles and stuff is because I literally you know, have a tiny window to film. Mm. So I, I just do like one take all the way through and that's it. <laughs> so, But it's just fitting it in with the rest of stuff in life because I know that if I need to go and film, I need to make sure the kids are occupied and, you know, my wife is home and there's nothing else I need to do. So it's just getting that window, I think, that is frustrating. And I don't have a dedicated spare room where everything I can leave set up. So I have to kind of set things up each time. 
And then in terms of the writing process, when you have your blank document, like the most scary thing in the world for a writer, what's the first thing you put down? Do you start with kind of learning objectives? Do you structure it? Like, How do you go from blank page to finished script? My background was writing. So I used to be quite a keen journalist and used to do a lot of writing when I was a student and edited a paper and then, you know, used to write quite a lot thereafter. And I always thought that was my future. And I always thought I'd be in sort of some print kind of journalism, you know, side uh, career. So I still approach everything like an essay, like a newspaper article. I probably write my intro first, as in what I want the kind of the hook of the piece. So I'll write that in long form, you know, the whole introductory paragraph so that I kind of know what someone would be expecting from that video. So I do the setup first. No, obviously I can come back and change that later. And then I'll try and just do some some bullet points. But I, I probably don't have a very good process. I, it's a little bit scatological. Just to clarify, Dr. Rohan Francis does not have a thing for poop. He meant the word scatterbrained. Because I come to it in fits and starts and random times of the day and, and here and there. So I'll just stick a paragraph here, then there. And it's all very haphazard because I take quite a long time to, to write a video. It'll, it'll just evolve eventually and then I'll, I'll read it through repeatedly and see where things flow and where they don't. So I don't have a, a kind of formal process and I, I don't think I've got any, had any training in like how to structure things. But I just read a lot and watch a lot of videos and... I think I have a good appreciation for the kinds of stuff I enjoy and, and how they're structured. And I, I guess I try and do it in a similar way. And my uh, recent videos have got a bit longer. That's accidental. It's not a deliberate thing, but I feel like I'll just do it as long as it needs. And I've started adopting an approach of almost having chapters. Yeah. So my last few videos, I've, I've actually signposted like chapter one, chapter two kind of thing. And I guess that's how I think about a big topic. I'll try and chunk it up like that. And you're writing simultaneously with researching. It's not that you do a whole bunch of research, put it in a document and then convert that to a script. They are sort of parallel processes. Yes, I think they're parallel processes. So say if I have got 10 papers that I want to use as my source material, I will do a, a single pass through through one of them and write down all the different bits of it that I think are important, then I'll go on to the next one. And then obviously that will cover some of the same area if they're in related fields. So then I'll just refine all the paragraphs I've written and add any bits from that one. Then I'll take the third. And so it'll just be an iterative process. But I just do one at a time. I don't look at everything in its entirety and, and make notes. I just put it straight into the script and then change it with every subsequent thing that I read. And that can have a problem because if you then find stuff that's contradictory, then you have to be like, okay, hang on, there's a conflict here. And then it becomes a bit more complicated. So it doesn't always work. But generally, I think in medical areas, that tends to be okay. And that's how I used to approach writing a, you know, a dissertation as well. I think I've just brought the same thought process from, from one to the other. So effectively, a video becomes almost like a log of your learning journey of your research. And so in a way, is it fair to say that you are casting yourself as almost an audience proxy in how you're structuring the video? I think that's very much how I see it. And I never try to make out that I'm the expert. I think my position is that I'm someone who's literate in the kind of research methodology and I can understand these papers. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a sort of audience proxy. And I always think about my audience as smart, 
but ignorant. Not ignorant in the kind of stupid sense, but ignorant in the literal sense of just not knowing this particular subject matter. So I assume that people who are watching my channel are probably have a pre-existing interest in science. They probably have a, a, a reasonable level of education. They're just not aware of the topic that I'm going into. And a lot of the time, neither am I before I start. So that's why, I, you know, I think you're right that it is very much my own learning journey. So that, you know, the, the video that I was kind of just rubbishing a few minutes ago saying that it wasn't one that I was that passionate about, but it's about cramp. And this is something that I personally get a lot of muscle cramp. So I wanted to find out what that's all about. And then I realized no one actually knows. Like, and I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. Isn't it weird that something so common, we don't actually know what it is. So the video is very much structured me trying to find out what's the deal with cramp. Yeah, I, I think that's very much how I see the videos is, is I'm not the expert. I'm not giving a didactic lecture. I'm just trying to figure it out and I'll, I'll take you along as well. That's interesting. Yeah, because I was thinking when you were saying right at the start about how science communication, you can find it quite frustrating because you feel like you're not actually engaging any kind of public, you're just talking in circles. Sounds like then you consider the public you're choosing to engage quite carefully. So do you really think about your audience like before you do a video, like, right, let me remind myself who this is for? Because that also probably impacts how you talk to people as well, right? Like and how you write the tone or does that just come quite naturally to you like that's the kind of people you're used to talking to and the tone you're used to taking yes this is maybe slightly more of the uh spicy i don't know if that's the right word but uh please give us the spice rain <laughs> yeah spill the tea <laughs> this is a really insular psychom tea that no one else is gonna understand no, well that's that, this is the target demographic right and um well that's meta isn't it we're thinking about target demographic while talking about target, target demographic. demographic yeah <laughs> wow my view on this is that i just don't give a toss about you know most people <laughs> and, <Yeah>. and <laughs> <laughs> that's the energy that radiates from you whenever i've met you Rohan. yeah and i'll qualify that by saying that there's so much concern with oh you've got to explain this or you've, you this can be taken in the wrong way and you know and I'm not talking about sort of like cancellation and all, all the kind of stuff that people normally mean when they talk about that on social media I just mean that you can't worry endlessly about every little thing you say I don't think anything I say is irresponsible but it's inevitable that people are going to take some things in in the wrong way and my intention is always to try and seek out the nuance in you know, all these complex topics. And I think the inability of people to do that or the lack of desire of people to do that, science communicators, to see everything as black and white, particularly, you know, when it comes to COVID and all, all these kinds of things, which obviously I've been deeply involved with and watching the science communication in this field, I just think has led to a, a real misconception about a lot of science. Mm. I don't know if you want to go <laughs> sort of into this topic. No, I'm interested, Rowan, go. On. All the kind of vaccine stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and we've now got people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. enjoying a lot of popularity in the US in particular. And people are talking about him running for president and stuff like this. And this is a complete nut. He's an absolute kook. You know, he says things that before the pandemic, majority of people would have said it's complete lunacy. You know, he, he believes 5G can alter your DNA. He believes that 
childhood vaccines cause autism and the government's trying to poison everyone and yeah. wild things. He's been saying the same thing for 20 plus years. You know, he's not changed his tune. But now suddenly everyone's taking him seriously. All the edgy podcasters are bringing him on. He's getting this huge platform now. You know, what's changed? It's because of one thing. It's because they agree with him on this one particular topic, which is COVID vaccination. And they feel like this is our guide. This is the guy who's on our side. And now they will allow all that other stuff to pass. You know, that they, they will be like, ah, you know, okay, like they'll give it a pass. And I'm sure there is a name for this concept of things getting in as bycatch, where you're looking for a particular thing and somebody, you agree with them on something, so then you allow all their more crazy ideas through. But, you know, he's not alone. There are lots of other people like that who are utterly crazy with things they say, but because of their stance on COVID countermeasures or COVID vaccines, now totally normal, rational people are giving them the time of day. And I'm not at all suggesting that the main culpability for any of this is science communicators or anything like that. You know, I, I'm not suggesting that at all, but it's inevitable that us as science communicators are going to analyze that area more closely. And we're going to, you know, and the people who are on the side of science, you know, this is my camp, right? So I'm naturally going to be more aware of what's happening on that side. And I feel like a lot of the science communication when it comes to the COVID pandemic has missed that kind of middle ground, has been totally black and white. And for example, comparing the, the COVID vaccines and lumping that in with childhood vaccines, I think from the start was not a sensible thing to do. And a lot of the communication from governments and, and just from people online who are sort of, you know, follow the science, or these kinds of slogans, really miss the nuance. And I think a lot of people just felt like, you know, this is not appealing to me. This is just too extreme. I feel like I've started to get a bit frustrated with some of the science communication in the medical field because it really does miss a lot of this deeper context. Like, I don't think most of the people on Instagram or, you know, YouTube with these big um, social media accounts as medical debunkers and, you know, blah, 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 is a quack and all that stuff. Mm. I don't think they're going through the studies. And I think they're just parroting what they've heard. And most of the time, that's fine. They're right. And a, lo a lot of the responsible science communicators, and there are many fantastic ones, I'm not at all suggesting that these people are the norm, but many of the excellent science communicators and medical science communicators will be responsible in what they say. They will echo existing guidelines. They will not say anything sort of off track. And obviously, I'm not, you know, there are loads of complete loonies and quacks I'm, I'm not considering. But then there are others who just kind of don't question what they're reading or what they're being told. And, well, maybe they don't have a skill set, but I think a lot of them should have a bit more ability to critically appraise things that are coming out. You know, some of the studies related to pandemic interventions were just garbage. And if they agreed with their pre-existing bias, they would say, oh, this is, this is a really important study. This shows that, you know, we have to put masks on two-year-olds. And that was their pre-existing bias. But then when it comes to ivermectin, or hydroxychloroquine, these kind of, you know, remedies that the anti-vaccine group were putting out, they would say, oh, well, this study is complete rubbish. It's nonsense. And in reality, most of the studies were nonsense. So I just felt like I wasn't sure that a lot of the big science communication accounts were actually helping that mm. much. This is a feeling that I get quite frequently is that we're just preaching to the choir. Yeah. Some of these debunking channels who 
find a homeopathy account or some video about drinking cow urine or, you know, something completely wacky that no rational person's going to believe. And they're like, ha ha ha, look at this. And, you know, they're inadvertently just kind of boosting that channel. I think there is obviously a place for debunking, but it hasn't appealed to me because I feel like it's not that intellectually stimulating. Mm. You know, I'm doing this for fun. I'm doing this as a hobby. And if you're going to try and debunk every kind of nonsense that is on the Joe Rogan podcast or, you know, all these similar kinds of platforms, it's a recipe for just burnout. You know, say these TikToks that come out, right? Say somebody is saying about taking vitamin D for COVID or something, you know, and that's why you don't need to get a vaccine. I'm not sure how much you can really convey in that one minute format or that short format. And often there's a bit of mockery. And I understand that, you know, and it's a human reaction when someone says something stupid, you want to make fun of them. But it's so isolating, isn't it, to have a mocking tone? Like, it makes that divide bigger, right? That's the problem. I think it does. And they're very popular. And I've done similar things to that as well. But who are they popular with? I think they're popular with people who already know that this is not true, right? Yeah. And I think there is a place for this. This is why I, I felt like I was digging myself a hole, because I, I don't want to say that that has no use at all. I mean, there are great channels that do it. So there's one channel who's not really medical, but it does different topics called Potholer 54, whose I think real name is Chris, maybe. And he does deep explorations with meticulous citations of certain things like particularly to do with climate. And uh, but he's, you know, he's done all, all kinds of different topics. And that's really interesting. He's not mocking. I mean, he can have some little acerbic barbs, which are, you know, very um, withering in a British way, which uh, I quite appreciate. But he's not got that sort of very mocking tone. And he'll really go into a topic. This is why this isn't true. And I think when it's a topic where he's like, "Mm, I'm not really sure about this, that can be really effective. But a lot of the kind of content that I seem to see has got that preaching to the choir feel that, who are you making this for? It's for people who already know, who already think the same way as you. I've just talked at you nonstop for a few minutes. I guess I'm trying to go for those people who are a bit in the middle and just need a little bit of gentle coaxing to make a good decision rather than to just be told, this is wrong, this is crazy. And you know. Yeah. Captain's Log. We appear to be in a star-forming region of space, a nebula. But instead of large, bloated, loud balls of gas, the stars being formed here are very different. They're stars of online educational video, making long-form content about science, geopolitics, and video games, among other subjects. That's right, Captain Picard. Nebula is a streaming service owned by a collection of creators, including Sophie and I, that hosts innovative, educational, and inspirational content from some of your favourite video and podcast makers. You can listen to all episodes of How to Make a Science video ad-free on Nebula, but you can also watch exclusive content from other creators such as Our Changing Climate, Lindsay Ellis, Wendover Productions, and many more. Exclusive content includes individual videos from your favourite creators, but also entire series such as Jetlag and Red Atoms. Get access to Nebula by signing up at go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. That's our special How to Make a Science Video link. And by using it, you can get 40% off a membership plan and support the show. Again, that link is go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. Computer, 
put Nebula on the main view screen. Engage. Because a standard objective of science communication is raising awareness of something or understanding or the ability to form an opinion about something. Whereas it sounds like your objective is actually improving scientific literacy, mm. which is not a standard objective and it's definitely more complex. I mean, would you agree with that? Is your objective improving scientific literacy? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I try not to tell people what to think, but try to give them some additional tools to make a decision for themselves. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to. Although I have heard you know, people talk about how efforts to improve scientific literacy ultimately fall flat. That sometimes makes me think, you know, am I really making that much of a difference? But I think it's different strokes for different folks. I, you know, I think there are going to be people who want much more just to be told, this is not true, this is true. And I guess that's not how my brain works. So that's not the kind of content I make. But, but how do you determine if a video is successful or not? I, I suppose that's two questions in one. Is it firstly, what are your metrics for success? And then secondly, how much do you read the comments on your videos, if at all? I read the comments for about the first 24, 48 hours, and then I don't. I used to read more, but yeah, I guess my metrics for success are just entirely my own. I don't chase views. I don't chase the algorithm. I mean, that's, I think that's apparent. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> what with your multiple million view no, videos? No. Yes, yeah, I think it's very, yeah. very apparent. Yeah, so you're being so like humble, Rowan. Like, come on, you, your videos are great. Like, oh, That's very nice of you. And, and it's entirely mutual. You know, I just do stuff I want to do. I always bracket this if I'm talking to other creators by saying I'm in a very privileged position, that this isn't my main income source, and I'm fully aware of that. If I think if this was my full-time career, I probably would have to pay more attention to these other metrics, but I'm in a position where I'm lucky that I don't need to. So for me, it's purely just stuff I want to make. And I think I do see feedback, you know, on Twitter or something, people will comment, you know, so I can tell some videos have clearly had more of a, an impact than others. And even, you know, got an award for one of them, which was kind of pandemic times, which I, I think, you know, I was I was happy with because it was in that early part of the pandemic and it was trying to just address some fears that people had at the time. But there's, I think, something that um, I can't remember who told us about it, but this F5 bot, which is this automated search thing that you can plug in little search terms. So I've had that set up recently. So I'll put Medlife Crisis in there. So anytime it comes up on Reddit, mm. then I can see what people are saying, which is something I'd never known before. You know, I just look on, you know, Twitter or whatever, but that's it. Whereas now I can see that there's quite a bit of discussion of different videos, which is really nice to see. So I'm getting a little feedback from that as well. But generally, I just do the ones that I want to do. Yeah, that's interesting, because I thought when you said, oh, I want to try and like reach people who maybe need a bit of pulling in, like in a bit of engaging and in a like non-completely mocking way. And then you're like, oh, I only read the comments at the beginning. I was going to be like, well, then how are you really getting a sense of who you're accessing other than your main followers? But I guess actually through seeing threads on Reddit and stuff, that's a way that you can be like, oh, wait, this has reached a new audience. Is that how you kind of find out if you've ticked that box? Because that must be satisfying for you to feel like you have access people. I mean, that's just a recent thing, really. The reason I don't read the comments after the first day or two is because I didn't find it very useful. Mm. And that's when the kind of more unpleasant comments start coming in, mm. you know, particularly if you're talking about something which has you know, heightened feelings 
around it and you know a lot of health stuff falls into that category i've made videos on vaccines and statins and and all these things that people just seem to have very strong feelings about so i didn't feel like that was good for my mental health nor was it really helping me guide the channel whereas i think i'm unashamedly happy to say that i do try and cater for the people who already like watching my videos and I want them to have a good experience in it and enjoy things. It doesn't necessarily mean new people because it can be the existing audience who are engaged, but new concepts. Yeah, learning something new. I think I've got quite diverse topics on the channel, which I'm, I'm happy about. But, you know, I guess there's been slow, steady growth of the subscribers. This is a podcast that'll be listened to by a lot of creators you know i think it's a common topic of discussion now how important subscriber views are and there's a feeling that they're kind of irrelevant these days but i think it's you know it's still a a useful metric of just you know if, if you see it kind of just slowly climbing upwards it's definitely slowed down for me but you know it means that at least some new people are are interested i think subscriber count also is still useful for the general layperson who's not terminally online and thinking about YouTube all the time like us is, uh, you know, that's still the first number people look at. So, you know, and I I guess you get emails from journalists or, you know, different people Mm -hmm. saying, oh, I watch this. And so so you you can't help getting a bit of feedback, but I I don't go seeking it out particularly, although I, you know, I've just said I've set up this bot, but I think there's definitely a danger of too much feedback. And I think sometimes you just need to put your fingers in your ears and do what you want to do. Yeah. And the comments is quite an extreme space as well. People will either comment if they're really annoyed or comment if they think that it's like the best thing ever, whereas that misses out all the people who it probably really liked it and it maybe changed their thought process, but they didn't feel the need to comment. Exactly. Yeah. And let's not pretend I like those early comments because they're nice. Yeah. I mean, would it be fair to say that based on the feedback from comments particularly, it has modified the subject matter that you discuss, but not necessarily the manner in which you discuss it? Um, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) To qualify that question, because you basically said, you know, when you're talking about stuff like that elicits strong emotions like the COVID vaccine or statins or whatever it is, it's not good for your mental health, which I completely agree with. As a climate creator, it's something that I wrestle with a lot. I suppose my question was, has that made you reluctant to engage in those topics again because of that feedback? Or do you think it's more the case that it's just changed how you approach different subjects? Oh, in that case, 100%. Yeah, I have no hesitation in saying that for sure. I, I have avoided topics because I just don't want to face all, all the, the kind of drama that comes out of it, which is sad, but I, I'm not going to lie about it. You know, particularly on, on Twitter as well. My Twitter account is probably more medical than my YouTube. I'm, I'm thinking of a general audience. My Twitter, you know, a lot of my followers, I think, are, are medical or science kind of people so i'll have much more detailed conversations there and i regularly self-censor i regularly avoid topics entirely because i just know that i'll, I'll just face a, a backlash or all kinds of shouting toxicity on there and i regularly take like a few months off twitter because i just do find it so unpleasant and i'm talking about medics particularly here you know there's so much fighting amongst medical professionals and i think you know i've struck a balance at the moment i'm I'm happy i'm not using twitter too much and and i just kind of dip in and say my bit and and go away and i I think it's better to look at it more like a one-way transaction and i feel like i've also got a similar attitude maybe that's come from the youtube side that's how i've now brought that to twitter to just see it more like a one-way 
you know, issuing my edicts, my sermons, uh, my, my words of wisdom, um, and actually not listening too much to, to what comes back. And I've got a circle of people that I trust, that I admire, and, you know, I'll listen to them. And I generally don't think I've, you know, said anything too off base or anything. So I'm not kind of worried that I'm, I'm going to say something horrendous. But, you know, there are many topics where, yeah, I'll steer clear, which is a shame. And I know that YouTubers may embrace some of these because it's a way to boost engagement and be a bit edgy or, you know, be a bit aggressive about certain things. But that's not what I'm chasing at all. You know, I, I, I just have no interest in that whatsoever. I mean, it's a very simple question to answer, I'm sure. But what do you think would have to change in order to create an environment online where that fear of reprisal from an audience isn't a factor? Like, is this something that needs to change in society or is it something that needs to change on those platforms? Oh, that's a simple question, isn't it, Simon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I had to pick one person to answer it, Rohan, I'm sure you're the oh, best no, person gosh, for the job. No, no I, th I think it's, it's not just social platforms. I, I don't think we can lay it all at their door. I think it is a societal thing. I think social media allows unfiltered thoughts like this, but it goes beyond that. And maybe bringing the conversation back to, to science, for example, you know, we've seen unprecedented kind of um, tribalism mm. in scientific circles. Well, I don't know, unprecedented, because I think that's always been the case. There's always been a tribalistic kind of camps within science, and you just have to look through the history of science. But of course, social media has exploded it in terms of its, you know, size. And previously, it would be a couple of posh Englishmen arguing at the Royal Society about, you know, galvanism versus uh, whatever the alternative was, Vol Voltaire and Galvan, <laughs> not, not, <laughs> you know, arguing yeah. about electricity. But now it's armies of incels and bots and everything. Just, yeah, it's, it's just so unpleasant and difficult. And, and there's all these kind of crazy things like, you know, science has been corrupted and science has gone woke and science is this and science is that and it's just oh god it's just so frustrating like I feel that's when I retreat into my little academic space and I'm like I'll just talk to people who are you know normal and yeah I, I don't know I don't know how to tackle that it's a societal issue it, it's not just social media to maybe focus the answer slightly more to what could social media platforms do for creators to try and avoid that you know, I, I think people don't take the option to just ignore comments or turn comments off enough. I think that mm. should be emphasized as a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Hopefully there shouldn't be an algorithmic punishment for turning off comments, but I probably I'm right in saying that there is still at the moment. I don't know if that's the case. Less engagement, yeah. I imagine probably. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there probably is. You know, not just bikes has had um, their comments off for a while and they're still pulling in huge numbers. So... I don't know, but maybe, you know, that that's something that could be explored a bit more. I haven't got any good solutions for you here. No, I think that's a very solid answer, yeah. I just kind of want to say, Rowan, it's really interesting how all your thoughts are kind of linking together in terms of, like, tribalism is the word that's been, like, screaming in my head the whole time you've been talking, and, like, how these two different groups, the black and white nature of Psycom, like, you pick the side and then you enhance your viewership within that side. Mm. But also that thing of when you're saying what puts you off making videos that actually maybe mean more to you is a mix of, like, 
the time that would have to go into them, but also how it would have to be so watertight that you, you know, the comments couldn't pick any holes in it. And even then the comments would. So why would you post a video when you're going to get absolutely rinsed for it for no reason? And I think that's so sad, isn't it? That like we end up not doing the things that we really care about because we're like scared a little bit of like how it's going to end up making us feel when we go online afterwards and seeing it all. It's just all a bit broken, isn't it really? Humans were a mistake. Yeah, yeah. The tribalism we have in us and then it's social media has just made it massive. Anyway, to go to something very different, I just have a really quick question for you personally, Rowan, more back on like YouTube persona. Because you like to take the piss out of like creators and influencers, but how do you pass that with the fact that you are a creator? And like like when you make a title, you sometimes like, this is a bit too YouTuber-y. Like I that's something I find, because sometimes when I make a thumbnail, I'm like, I could make this more YouTuber-y and maybe more clickable, mm. but I don't want to because that's not me. Like, how do you deal with that? Sorry, this is, this is another question, but I just wanted to know that from you. I don't know that I do deal with it very well. I mean, I think I've been called out a few times when I've been a bit clickbaity or I've fallen into one of those traps. So I'm not sure that I'm getting it right. And, you know, do you remember that Veritasium made a, a whole introspective navel gazing video about why basically I'm this channel is going to be full of clickbait and that's fine because, it, you know, algorithm. And I was like, you know, just, you know, you, you don't have to give all this faux scientific. You can just say, I'm going to do clickbait because I get more views. And it's a natural tendency, isn't it? But it's it's difficult because there there are loads of channels which don't play that game and do really well. Even on your own channel, you know, the ones that you try and endlessly optimize and give a workshop the thumbnail and the, the title and everything, you know, don't really do that well. And my most successful video, except one that was about uh, COVID was actually my second video where, you know, I hadn't got a clue what thumbnails meant or titles meant or anything. So I think we can overanalyze it too much. How do I take the piss out of creators and, and be a creator? Uh, I don't know. I've never had problems taking piss out of people. So um, I take the piss out of doctors all the time. And I'm happy to have the piss taken out of me as well. I'll take it as much as I give it. So I don't mind any of that. We finish these chats by asking our guests the same five quickfire questions, starting with, if you had a million pounds, we said dollars to the Americans, but pounds to you, what video would you make? Basically, huge budget. Is there a video you would love to make? I guess I've always been inspired, you know, particularly growing up by those kind of really nice BBC documentaries like Horizon, uh, which was a, a show back in sort of the 90s, which would do a, a one-hour kind of exploration of, of a topic in science. And there's one chap called Kevin Fong, who I don't know if you know, but he's a... Yeah. he's an, And he's someone I, early on I thought... He was actually my lecturer for my space medicine degree, so that's when I met him. And then he, he did, was doing some TV stuff, and obviously, you know, he's a space doctor, so that was all very glamorous. He was, you know, he's still a full-time doctor as well. And so I, th I saw him as someone I kind of wanted to emulate in that he's still working, but making these cool TV programs. And we both share an interest in the extremes of physiology. So one idea that I'd, I'd love to do is to try and put myself, like see how much I could push my physiology and go to different communities 
and extreme athletes, the Sherpa, the Bajau, that was my Tom Scott video, was, it was about um, them. They're a diving community in Southeast Asia who can go underwater for 10 minutes at a time. The Sherpa can, you know, survive at high altitude and, you know, just try and just take a year off and see what my body could actually put up with in that kind of gonzo YouTube style, but actually make it all scientific. So, you know, climb Everest and, and take a blood gas and see what my oxygen is and, and that kind of stuff. Some of it's been done before, but to try and structure it like a kind of voyage across human evolution through the, the eyes of a very ordinary, you know, regular person, I thought would be nice. The other one, which I'd love to do is like a really polished look through kind of medical history specimens, you know, in the, the kind of Royal College of Surgeons, Pathology Museum, They've got all these historic specimens of, you know, kidney stones that are the size of a grapefruit or the elephant man skeleton and, and all these different kind of fascinating things from history. And then spend each episode sort of talking about one organ and then explaining the body. Yeah, I think both of those need a considerable budget. I like the idea of Dr. Rohan Francis's extreme body. <laughs> Have a title, something like that. <laughs> also, it was a great answer. You were like, oh, I don't know. And then you're like, actually, this year-long series. It's two perfect concepts. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Next question. What one change would you make to YouTube to improve the website? Get rid of shorts, maybe. Ooh. You have a shorts channel, don't you? No, I won't. That's dead. <laughs> I oh, okay. I, <laughs> I only set it up because Simon did. And then I was like, why did I copy him? And I don't know. And I stopped making <laughs> yeah, I <know>. them. <laughs> so. No, I'm not that against shorts. Yeah, it's good. Every now and again, you know, if you're in incognito mode or you're not logged in and you go to YouTube homepage... And then you were like, oh, my God, what is this? And it's just the horrors of what 99% of YouTube is. Yeah. And, and we live in our tiny 1% little niche of educational YouTube. Then I remember how much crap there is. And like, yeah, I guess, you know, I've got kids who are still quite young, but I do worry about the kind of stuff they're going to see when they're older. So uh, I'll give a dad answer. I think the Mr. Beastification and this kind of extreme everything and challenges and pranks and all that stuff. I, yeah, that's just uh, awful, awful content. So if YouTube can disincentivize that somehow, that would be good. Okay. So what do you think, Rowan, educational YouTube or educational video will look like in 10 years time compared to now? Do you think it'll be AI impacted? Do you think it'll be even more divisive? Linking to what you've said, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, Kyle Hill had a nice video recently about the kind of potential impact of AI on educational YouTube because we're now at a point where you can have entirely AI-generated videos, which already have existed, but they're generally like a robo-voice reading out some nonsense script. But now you can have visuals, the script the audio, all done by AI with no human input at all. And there's no quality control. And sometimes there's deliberate obfuscation and, and, and misinformation. So the worst case scenario is, is we are inundated with that kind of stuff. And we totally lose track of what is real. And everybody retreats into their little echo chambers. As Simon was mentioning, you know, climate stuff. You have people already believing utterly contrary things because that's the kind of information they're being fed. And potentially that's going to get much, much worse. So 
you know, I think my natural position is is a bit cynical. So I think that is a very distinct possibility. But maybe if I try and give a slightly more optimistic answer, then mm, I don't know. What, what, let me turn it around then. What do you think is a best case scenario? Oh, this isn't no. about us. No, 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 this no, isn't no, about no, us, right? No, you can't no, get off that no, way. No, oh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, don't don't force yourself to give an optimistic answer if it's not in your nature, it's, Rowan, it's the, you know, don't. Don't force yourself to swim against your tide. Just a chasm of despair when I look within. <laughs> yeah, Rohan just looked deep inside himself for the optimism and found 404, 404. that part of him was <laughs> yeah. missing. Yeah, I love you. Like, let me give an optimistic answer. And you're like, no, And then actually, blue screen. No, yeah. <laughs> Two final questions on a more positive note. Accepting the three of us on this call, who is a creator you think everybody should watch? Uh, Captain Disillusion. Great answer. Very, very much agree. Well, okay, not including any videos from any of us or any videos from Captain Disillusion, what is one video you think everyone should watch? Um, Finding X by Tibbies, Toby Henry, which is just a beautiful 10-minute video about maths. I mean, it's hard to describe it. it it's a stop-motion animation about X, you know, from algebra, and going on a journey through maths. It's just gorgeous. It, you know, it really made me think that this is what YouTube can be. Uh, I watched it with my kids. You know, a lot of it went over their head, but it's just visually stunning. It's so well written. It was a passion project. So I think that's just a wonderful video. What a lovely answer. Amazing. Great answer. As always, talking to Rohin is a delight and really interesting. And it's a rich field, but what do you think was your main takeaway from today? Yeah, despite my sarcastic tone the whole time I talked to Rohin, I love talking to him. He's an absolute legend. And I think what really stood out to me was all the chat about preaching to choirs and the risk of doing that and the risk of isolating people from our science communication. And there's a type of communication in Psycom that's known as ritualistic. And this is this idea that we get everyone together and we all sort of perpetuate the way that society is currently existing. And I think there's an aspect of that in the things that Rohan was talking about. Like if you're always mocking the other, the other are never going to get involved. They're never going to become part of your community because they're getting pushed out. It only deepens divides. And that's something that we've seen, you know, we've seen that happen writ large in society in the past 10 years. Exactly. It happens in very serious circumstances, but actually I related it to when I did my master's. (laughs) I did a bit of research into science comedy and how well it works as an engagement method, how well it brings outsiders in. And the thing is with comedy is... The way you make people laugh is people have got to feel in on the joke. And by having an in-group to a joke, you have to have an out-group of a joke. And therefore, there's naturally going to be people who feel excluded. And I think that's what's going on with these creators or people who like to mock those who are seen as stupid or not in the in-group. And so I think that was just a really interesting point that he made. What about you, Simon? What did you find interesting? I think... In a way, what I found most interesting was the parallels between what Rohan was talking about in a lot of different areas, actually, of our discussion and my field of talking about climate. You know, him him talking about the temptation to debunk everything and, you know, trying to debunk everything you hear on, say, the Joe Rogan podcast is 
not going to get you very far and it's going to drive you mad. The idea of, you know, trying not to preach to the choir. Uh, you, you don't want to reach only the people who are already convinced that climate change is a serious problem. You want to reach the people who are in doubt as to the fact that climate change or the fact that humans are responsible. And that means not doing, as you say, not producing this outgroup that you're punching down on, but being more... I suppose being more innovative is something that's come up in several discussions we've had in this series in how you do science communication. And this idea of sensationalism on both ends of the spectrum, you know, people who are hearing these headlines and just repeating them and not reading the studies themselves, and that echoing out through the the, the social media sphere. It's something that, that Rohin has had to deal with intensely during the COVID pandemic mm. and something that unfortunately is like a constant background hum for people like me that do climate stuff. Mm. But I suppose it was nice to see someone else in a different field undergo similar trials and sort of try to learn from their experiences. Trauma bonding. Trauma bonding, exactly. It's not just me going through this. Well, that's all for this episode. Next time, however, we're talking to... Hello, I'm Toby and I run the YouTube channel Tibbies. When I am conceiving of a video and thinking about how I'm going to communicate it, really I'm making it for this ethereal version of myself. When I pick topics and the level at which I'm communicating the ideas, I'm not simplifying them down to who I was five or ten years ago and, and the math I knew then. I'm actually making it for me and the knowledge I have right now. Thanks again to Rohin for joining us. If you want to watch his videos, they're on youtube.com slash medlifecrisis. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to How to Make a Science Video, a Nebula podcast. The producer was none other than Simon Clark. Our music and editing were provided by Fergus Hall and our artwork by Lizzie Fiakovsky. If you enjoyed this episode, please do recommend the podcast to your friends, family, and rate us on your podcast service of choice. Bye.